Let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you today, we ask for guidance, for your wisdom, through the Holy Spirit in our lives, that we may take your word, we may apply it to our lives, and that we may respond correctly before you, so that we will truly worship you and bow the knee before you. We pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, as I was reflecting and pondering on today's passage, I realized that actually it's very sad that actually if you apply this passage directly to the world that we live in today, uh, there are actually churches which call themselves churches of Christ, but in reality, there are no Christians there. They may be led by pastors who call themselves shepherds of God's people, but in reality, they're only leading their flock to hell. And it's very sad because they have failed to listen to God's word. But it's even more sad, I think, when I was reflecting on it and I was sort of wondering, are there people sitting within our midst who, if they were applying this passage and listening to John the Baptist as God was speaking through him, uh, have not really tasted the joy of what it meant to be a Christian, and more than that, were facing the real danger of not actually receiving salvation and actually going to hell. Now why is that? Why would that be that some people in, in churches or some churches would actually be in danger of hell? Why would it be that some people sitting here may be in danger of hell? Well, I think it's because they have neglected to listen to the words of John the Baptist. Now, we often skip through John the Baptist on our journey to Jesus, and uh, we sort of think, oh, you know, John the Baptist is sort of this uh, minor prophet just before Jesus comes, and we want to focus on Jesus. But actually, John the Baptist is very, very crucially important because if you look at the Gospels, there are four Gospels in our Bible, in the New Testament, and every one of those Gospels records the ministry of John the Baptist. Now, why is that so? It must be because John the Baptist is a very important person, and the words that he preaches, or the task and ministry that he fulfills, is very important. If not, all four Gospel writers will not bother to record him there. So, what are the words of John the Baptist that we need to pay attention to? Well, chapter 3 begins in verse 1 and 2, very similarly to chapter 2. And uh, we see in chapter 2 that the birth of Jesus was set within world history. And the same thing with the ministry of John the Baptist. So in verse 1 it says, In the fifteenth year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar, when Pontius Pilate was governor of Judea, Herod Tetrarch of Galilee, his brother Philip Tetrarch of Iteria and Draconitis, and Licinius Tetrarch of Abilene, during the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. Now, uh, again, as we saw in the birth of Jesus, uh, Luke sets these events in the midst of history, of international history, the world of the Roman Empire, of the lo- local regional history of Israel, of the, and also of the religious history of the religious leadership in Israel. Now, we can actually quite accurately place when this happens because it says there in verse 1, in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar. And we know that he began his reign as uh, the as a Roman emperor in 14 AD. So, 15 plus 14 is what? 29. Okay? 29. Alright? So, we know that uh, this is happening within whole history at 29 AD. So it's not myth, it's not legend, it's not fairy tale. These are real events happening in real time, real people in real places rooted in history. And we meet the person of John. 
And it says here that the word of God came to John, son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country of Judea, of the, around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. So the word of God came to John and he preached uh, a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, we often think of John as the Baptist, right? because that's what the title says, John the Baptist prepares the way. But first and foremost, he was a preacher. And he was preaching about the baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, what does this mean, this very short and tight, very loaded sentence, right? The baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Okay, Because that sort of summarizes the whole of the ministry and the preaching of John the Baptist. Now, what is that? So, if you look up here, okay, on the side, so the three elements, right? Baptism, repentance, forgiveness of sins. So, what was the baptism that uh, John was uh, conducting? Well, in those days, the Jews in the Old Testament didn't practice baptism. Uh, they had ceremonial washing, they had ritual washing, but they didn't have baptism. Uh, some commentators say that uh, in the past, maybe uh, the Gentiles may be baptized to become part of the Jewish community, but the Jews themselves didn't baptize uh, people. Okay, so what John was practicing was not what they had practiced ever before. The baptism that John was practicing is also not the same as the baptism that we practice in church or churches practice today. Because today when people are baptized, they're baptized into Christ. They're baptized to become a Christian. But what John was doing was a baptism of repentance, not a baptism into Christ. Because Jesus Christ had not yet begun his ministry. Jesus Christ had not yet died. Jesus Christ had not yet risen yet. So what was this baptism that John was doing? Well, baptism was a, is, is a symbol of washing, isn't it? A symbol of washing. A symbol of renewal, where, you know, just the idea of dunking yourself in a river or pouring water over you is the idea of being washed clean of the previous filth or dirt that you have on you. And I think that in uh, the Old Testament, the idea of washing had the idea of purification or washing away of sins. So like in Isaiah chapter 1 and Jeremiah chapter 4, this idea is presented, isn't it? Your hands are full of blood. Okay, so you need to wash and you need to make yourselves clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Encourage the oppressed. Defend the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Okay, and Jeremiah 4 says, O Jerusalem, wash the evil from your heart and be saved. How long will you harbor wicked thoughts? So this baptism uh, was essentially like that. It's the idea of washing. Right to cleanse yourself of evil things, but this was a baptism of repentance. Now, what is repentance? We don't usually use this word very often, right? Repentance, okay. But repentance is is literally a, the Greek word for change of mind or change of heart. It's like the idea of a U-turn, a turnaround, and about face. Now, I want to really focus on this word repentance because people misunderstand what repentance means. So even if you think you know what repentance means, you know, just bear with me and make sure you have it right. Because many people think repentance is just turning away from sin, turning away from evil, turning away from uh, your past and, and turning over a new leaf. But actually repentance is not just turning away from sins, but it's turning away from sin and turning back to God. Okay, Because you know, if you just turn away from your sins, then you're sort of like face nowhere, right? You're oriented towards nowhere, but 
Repentance is the idea where you turn away from your sins and turn back to God. We can see that in Luke chapter 15 because in the, in the parable of the prodigal son, which we'll do sometime next year, right? Um, Jesus uh, tells a story about how the son has gone away from the father, he's taken his inheritance and lived a thoroughly sinful life. Okay, I think it's up here. But then later on in verse 17, he comes to his senses and he said, How many of my father's hired hands, hired men, have food to spare? And here I'm starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. So this is a visual picture of repentance. Because the prodigal son, he said, okay, I'm going to turn over a new leaf, and I'm no longer going to be a bad person. I'm no longer going to sin. What good is that, isn't it? Unless he turns back and goes back to the father, that is really not repentance. See, So repentance, to be clear, is not just turning away from sin, but turning back to God. So any of this, I heard this sermon by this guy called Dale Rolf Davis. He's a very funny American guy, and he's telling us, or he's telling the the uh, the people about this town in Warbush in America. I've never heard it before. Warbush in America, where it's this tiny town where there's only one road to go in, where you drive for eight hours to go into this town in the middle of nowhere, and it, if you want to get out, there's only one road to get out. There's no other ways in or out. And he says that is the picture of repentance. If you want to get in or out. You've just got to make a 180 degree turn to get out. There's no other way. And so the same thing for us. Like We are driving in the direction of sin, driving in the direction of worshipping ourselves and our pride and indulging ourselves. But repentance is turning away from self and going back to God. Okay, That's the idea of repentance. Now repentance itself, okay, so go back in. So there was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now, John the Baptist didn't bring forgiveness in his ministry. Okay? John the Baptist could not bring forgiveness of sins. It was Jesus who brought forgiveness. And what John the Baptist was doing was he was preparing people's hearts to receive forgiveness when Jesus came. That's why it was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. It was a preparatory work. John the Baptist himself didn't bring forgiveness. And that's why we have to read verse 4, because verse 4 explains verse 3 and the ministry of John the Baptist. So verse 4 says, As is written in the book of the words of Isaiah the prophet, a voice of one calling in the desert, Prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight paths for him. Every valley shall be filled in. Every mountain and hill made low. The crooked road shall become straight. The rough way smooth. And all mankind will see God's salvation. Now the passage that uh, is being quoted here was written 800 years before the birth of Jesus when God spoke through the prophet Isaiah. God had said through Isaiah that before the Lord came, before salvation came, a messenger or a herald would prepare the way for him. Now, in the olden days, uh, we can sort of see this, right? When the king came to a town, they would always send a messenger ahead of them to tell people, the king is coming, prepare everything, right? Because, you know, you can't sort of just turn up unannounced, isn't it? It's just, a, I remember a long time ago, before I was born, I think, when Queen Elizabeth or somebody, somebody came to Singapore, like, 
okay, went to visit some flat, some HDB flat, I'm sure I learned it in school, right? And, uh, you know, the, the person made the flat really nice so that the king and queen could come and visit their HDB flat. It's the same thing, you see, when, the, when a great, powerful person comes, you must be prepared. And here, the picture is one of, of massive roadworks, right? It's more roadworks than the PIE, CTE, and ECP put together, right? Because the mountains will be brought low and the valleys brought high. But what God was actually interested in was not geography, he wasn't interested in roadworks, but interested in people's hearts. In order to receive Jesus, it is not building roads and stuff, it is getting your heart prepared. And that's why in Luke chapter 1, it, 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 it uses the language of Isaiah, but he uses it in a heart way, a heart preparation way. So you look at what it says here in Luke chapter 1, you notice it's a parallel to what Isaiah says, but instead of using the picture language of building roads and everything, he talks about the heart. So the angel said to Zechariah, Many of the people of Israel will he, John the Baptist, his son, bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedience to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Again, Zechariah says a similar thing, and you, my child, who is John the Baptist, will be called a prophet of the Most High, for you will go on before the Lord to prepare the way for Him, to give His people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins. So what is happening here is, if you read the three passages together, Isaiah and Luke 1 passages, John the Baptist works to prepare people's hearts through repentance so that they can receive Jesus' forgiveness. Can you see that? Now, that's so important for us to understand because what John the Baptist is saying is without repentance, you cannot receive the forgiveness of God. But let me say that again. Without repentance, you cannot, cannot receive the forgiveness of Jesus. Now, the problem today is that we often think of repentance to be a very embarrassing word. Right? So if um, you think of repentance, you think of some Bible-bashing uh, maniac or fanatic at uh, Bible uh, lectern-thumping madman uh, preaching repentance from the pulpit, isn't it? But the, the thing is, actually, repentance is actually part of the Bible and the Gospel message. It's not about some madman banging the, the Bible, right? It's not like um, in Australia sometimes when you're walking on the park, you have these people shouting, Repent! Repent! Right? You start thinking, oh, repentance is only for mad people. No, repentance is actually part of the gospel message. And the problem for us is that we live in an age where Christianity, like one of my lecturers in theological college, Mike Ovi, who's now the principal of Oak Hill Theological College in, in England, said, in the 21st century, we preach a repentantless Christianity, where many churches do not preach the importance of repentance and it's all about faith and what God is going to do for you. So I was reading this book again, I quoted it before from this book on civilization. And this guy, I don't think he's a Christian, but this is his own observation. And he says that um, uh, today's uh, Christianity is a kind of consumer Christianity that verges on Walmart worship. Walmart is like uh, NTUC or you know, cold storage, right? 
Okay? It is not only easy to drive to and entertaining to watch, not unlike a trip to the multiplex cinema with soft drinks or Starbucks served on the premises, it also makes remarkably few demands on believers. On the contrary, they get to make demands on God, so that the prayer at this church often consists of an extended series of requests for the deity to solve personal problems. God the Father, the Son and the Holy Ghost has been displaced by God the Analyst, the Agony un- Uncle and the Personal Trainer. Right? So, if you have that sort of Christianity, you believe that sort of Christianity, without repentance, then John the Baptist says that you will not be saved. Because you have not repented and without preparing your heart, you cannot receive the forgiveness that Jesus brings. Repentance is a really important thing. It's the first step, it's the preparatory step before you can receive Jesus Christ into your heart. Now, let's go on to verse 7 and see what true repentance looks like then. So John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers, who warns you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance. And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, John is a very blunt person. Okay, He's not a uh, people pleaser. He just says what needs to be said. Now, you can imagine that uh, John the Baptist is in the middle of the wilderness. Okay, That's where he is. He's not on Otter Road. Okay, he's like far, far away in the desert. People are shutting up their shops. They're traveling onto the desert to come and see him, hear him preach, be baptized by him. Now, if John were a typical pastor, what would he say? Great to see you all of you guys, right? Thanks for making the journey, all right? Come to my church, right? Welcome. But what does he say instead? He says, you brood of vipers, you snakes, no birth baptism certificate for you. Right? Now, if you think about it, it's very, very uh, offensive what he's saying because when he says you brood of vipers, uh, basically snakes symbolize Satan, right? I mean, the Garden of Eden, Satan was symbolized by a snake. He's, what he's saying is, you people are not God's people but masquerading as God's people, but you're actually, you're actually Satan's people. Now, uh, I don't usually uh, refer to uh, Eugene Peterson, but he's quite entertaining to read. And uh, if you actually read this section, he, he, he gets the flavor of how offensive uh, what John the Baptist's words are. He says, you brood of snakes, what do you think you're doing slithering down here to the river? Do you think a little water on your snake skins is going to deflect God's judgment? Okay, so that's the flavor of what John is actually saying. He's saying, look, you guys are not... God's people. And why are you not God's people? Because of three errors that they are making, three fatal lies that they are believing. The first lie is found in verse 8, isn't it? Produce fruit in keeping of repentance. So what he's saying was these people were getting baptized, but externally they they were getting baptized, but internally there was no change. Internally, their heart was not prepared for God. They were just going through the external rite, the religious rite of baptism of repentance. Now, repentance is not about feelings or sorrows or tears or external, you know, the, 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 the washing of water that they, they underwent. 
But it is inside, isn't it? Like basically, John the Baptist says that they were phonies, they were insincere, they were fakes. Because their fruit reflected that their heart hadn't changed. So a husband can say to a wife, alternatively, a wife can say to a husband, that they love them. But, if they have no fruit, then it shows that their words are empty. Right? So, a husband says to the wife, I love you, but then keeps sleeping around, or goes to the pub all the time with his friends, or is really rude to her, then those words are meaningless. They don't, they're not real words. Uh, this, uh, uh, one of the pastors again told, one, told this really good story about how I can really um, relate to it. You know, sometimes you're driving down the road, and then there's a, there's a lumbu driver in front of you, right? And, uh, you know, sometimes they have the indicator, oh no, tick, 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 okay, they're gonna change lane. And then you're driving, driving, and yeah, mile after mile, that, that, that left turn is still on, you think, is this guy gonna turn or what, right? And you realize that actually they've just left it on by mistake and they've just forgotten about it and they're driving. So that left turn signal doesn't really signify that they wanted to turn at all. It was just, it's a false signal. And that's what John the Baptist is saying, you know, your baptism is a false signal because you really don't want to repent in your heart. So I wonder for ourselves, as we apply to ourselves this message, do we, in our lives, reflect fruit in keeping with repentance in our life? Do our actions show that inside of us, our hearts have really repented? Really, really repented. So I like what this Dick Lucas said. He said, when is the last time you seriously changed your mind or your behavior? And not did what you wanted to do, but did what God wanted you to do. Or when was the last time when someone pointed out something wrong in your life, how did you respond? Uh, I don't know Dick very well, but he's quite honest. He said he himself feels that uh, he's unbearably proud and stubborn. I don't know, maybe he he sounds a bit proud sometimes. But anyway, so he says, you know, he eats the same things. He has all these habits, right? And he said that as you get older, you become more stubborn in your habits. I don't know. I'm not that old yet. Okay? But maybe as you get older, that's what he said, right? You can become very stubborn in, in the things that you want to do. But he said, if you are stubborn and immovable against God, if you are unwilling to change before God, then he says that's very dangerous ground. Because it shows an unrepentant heart. And if you are unrepentant before God, and you do things which you know God doesn't want you to do, if you have no fruit to change, then you must listen to the words of John the Baptist because you are in danger. So, a few other pastors gave some illustrations. So, maybe in your life, do you need to repent of something? Do you have some relationship with somebody that is leading you away from God or into sin that you need to repent of? Some other people said, do you have relationships with people in your family or in church or in your workplace, the way that you treat them? Do you need to change that? Or are there attitudes and goals in your life? Maybe problems of anger or pride or lust or indifference to the things of God that you need to repent of. Because if you don't change, you don't produce the fruit in keeping with repentance, then what is John's verdict? John's verdict is that you are a, you're a snake, you're a viper. You're not really a child of God, but you're actually a child of Satan. So the first lie... But the first danger is that 
they believed that the external right of religion was good enough, but it, John says it's not. What is the second lie? The second lie says, And do not begin to say to yourselves, We have Abraham as our father, for I tell you that out of these stones, God can raise up children for Abraham. So these Jews, they were thinking that, okay, we are special. We're special because we have the genes or the DNA of Abraham. We are real Jews. We are the real bloodline of God's people. God made a promise to Abraham and we've got those, the same blood in our veins. But John says, look, God doesn't owe you anything. God does not owe you or you know, need to make these promises to you just because you've got the same bloodline. But what counts again is the attitude of repentance on an individual basis. Right? Are they prepared? Are they ready to receive Jesus? And I was thinking that, uh, I was just sort of sitting there and brainstorming and thinking, what are the things that people depend on instead of repentance? And I've seen many of those things in my life. Maybe some people think that because they're Anglicans, they're Methodists, or they're Presbyterians, that somehow, you know, repentance isn't so important. Or maybe you go to the type of church, maybe you have a big church, or the pastor that you follow, and instead of repenting, you think, okay, that, that makes me alright with God. Some other people say, okay, I can speak in tongues. Well, I can speak in tongues, and that's fine, right? I've got the Holy Spirit. Why do I need to repent? Or somehow, you know, God speaks to me in visions. Well, if God speaks to me in visions, I don't have to worry so much about repenting. Or maybe, you know, I, I serve as a Bible study leader. I've got all this Bible knowledge. I don't need to repent. But John is very clear, isn't it? Without repentance, there is no salvation. The third lie is, so the first lie was the external religious ceremony counts for nothing. The second lie was you can't be immune from God's judgment. The third lie is the lie of urgency. Verse 9 says, The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Now, the immediate context was for the people of Israel, and they thought, oh, okay, you know, I can make up my mind later. Okay, John the Baptist here, I've made the journey to the desert. Ah, you know, I'll put it on the KIV shelf and think about it some other time. But there's a lie that all of us are tempted to believe in. Uh, in the Garden of Eden, uh, Satan told a lie to Eve and said to Eve, you, sh- you will not surely die. Do you remember that in the Garden of Eden, Genesis? You will not surely die, but Eve died. But the other lie of Satan is, there is more than enough time to avoid judgment. There is always another day where you can make up your mind. Now, I've met so many people who've, uh, who have this attitude, who believe that lie. They'll say, okay, I will become a Christian after I graduate from university. I'll become a Christian after I've partied a little more. I'll become, I'll become a Christian or accept Christ or repent after I've gratified my, some of my sinful desires. I've even had people tell me, I will become a Christian after I retire. But John the Baptist says very clearly that the axe is at the root of the tree. Now think of it as a visual picture, okay? When the axe is at the root of the tree, what does that mean? It means that the tree is ready to be cut down. The axe is not sitting in the shed. The axe is not being sharpened. The axe is already there. All it takes is one swing. 
for the tree, you know, felling process to begin. But many people believe that. They believe, okay, there's always going to be more time to become a Christian and to be forgiven and to be saved. Now, I used to wear this uh, Christian t-shirt. I can't find it anymore. I know I would have brought it. It was, I think, now that I think of it, it might be quite offensive, lah. But I was wearing it at university, so it didn't matter so much. And it used to have this picture. And it says, those who wait for the 11th hour to find Jesus, kick the bucket at 10.30. Okay? And, uh, and basically, you know, when I, when I think of all the people I've, I've tried to reach out to, it's true, isn't it? Because so often people think, I've got more time, I've got more time. So my sister was in medical school and she had a, uh, this friend who I tried to bring to Christ, and I, at, at medical school I evangelized him, and he said, "Okay, after I finish medical school, after he finished medical school, I spoke to him again on one of my holidays." He said, "Oh, you know, I'm not ready yet." I called him when I went on holiday. He's now living in the Gold Coast. He he, he does uh, uh, he's a skin specialist, so apparently a lot of people have skin cancer in the Gold Coast, right? So tells you that you shouldn't be in the sun too much when you go on your holidays. And uh, by this time, he said, oh, I can't become a Christian anymore. Why? Because now I'm, uh, I'm going out with this girl and uh, we're not married yet and she's got, we've got two kids already and uh, I've got a lot of business. See, so he's always thinking, I've got more time, I've got more time, I've got more time. But really, actually, he doesn't have more time because he's going further and further away from God. In fact, he's further away from God now than he was when I first spoke to him in university. See, the thing is, that's a lie that they were listening to and that's a lie that we can listen to. Judgment is far away. There is no urgency, but but John the Baptist says that there is urgency. They needed to repent now, not tomorrow. Now, in verse 10 to 14, he gives some specific examples of what repentance is. So, in verse 10, it says, What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, The man of two tunics should share with him who has none. The one who has food should do the same. Tax collectors also came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you're required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, what should we do? He replied, do not extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. Now, I'm going to look at the, the three of them sort of uh, together. What unifies these three examples, if you look at them? They, they've all got a certain theme, a common theme across the three examples. Now, the first thing that you have to pay attention to is repentance is not John saying, okay, repentance is you need to wake up every morning at 5 o'clock and pray for 3 hours. You don't need to become a monk and uh, go and go to a monastery for a year. No, he doesn't say that, right? He doesn't say, oh, you need to do this and that no, you know, and, and separate yourself from the world. But repentance is all about living in the world and engaging the world in a different way. And two things, two attitudes need to change. The attitude to money and things. Right? The three examples all have to do with money and things. And both of them have to do with relationships. Always about relationships. Now in the first one, the crowd says, you know, what should we do? And he says, they should share. They should love other people by sharing the things that they have. So rather than worshipping the things that they have, they should be generous with the things that they have to other people. Now this is a million, million miles away from the prosperity gospel. Right? Because the prosperity gospel says, give to me, the church, and you will get a hundred times more. You give me ten dollars, you will get a 
hundred times, one thousand dollars more. Okay? But here the motivation is not getting more. He doesn't say, give your tunic so you get ten more tunics. He says, give your tunic out of generosity and love to the one who doesn't have. This is not about getting more, it's about being generous with the things that God has given you. It's about stewardship, not ownership. God has given you these things as stewards, not as owners. So, as you relate to other people, are you a generous person? Are you an owner? Do you see yourself owning these things? Or are you a steward of the things that God has given you? So does that mean that you're willing to open up your house and invite people over for Bible study or newcomers or whatever so that they will tramp along you know, your new carpet and dirty your things and put their cups and uh, damage your table? Will you lend your car to other people so that they can put dents on it and have their children put crumbs in it? Or will you give your money away you know, to the poor and to missionaries? Now the next group of people were the tax collectors. Now, the tax collectors in those days are not like our IRAs today, right? Okay, because in those days, um, they had subcontracting of tax. So basically, uh, what happens is uh, the Roman government couldn't be bothered with taxing all the individual people. So they said, okay, uh, who wants to tax Haogang? Okay, then you bid $10 million, okay, another person bid $20 million. Another person bid $30 million. So then, then the, the person who won the bid will then go and tax the people there. Now you can understand where uh, this sort of system would lead to a lot of corruption because then the person that won the bid would sort of impose all these taxes which, which may not be the right taxes because they wanted to get more money. In a similar situation, the soldiers said, no, don't give up your soldiering. Right? He doesn't say, go, you know, stop being soldiers or stop being tax collectors. He says, change, right? So the soldiers were shaking down people. Okay, maybe we don't we don't know actually we have no conception of what this means. And that's exactly what John the Baptist is saying here, you know, don't shake people down. Be content with your pay, be honest, be fair. Now, we are not tax collectors, we are not soldiers, we are not policemen that way. But are you honest in the way that you treat other people, especially when it comes to money matters? Are you greedy? Do you, you know, try to unscrupulously get the extra buck? Do you cut corners to take advantage of people? Uh, you know, what is more important to you? Is money and material things more important to you or the way that you treat other people? Uh, unfortunately, I've heard many horror stories of people who say that they're Christian and then, you know, they do business and then when they actually do business, they are no better or even worse than some people who don't call themselves Christians in the way that they, they do things. I've had bad experiences myself. You know, people who are so-called Christian locksmith or Christian subcontractor or something. I'm sure that some of you have as well, isn't it? But that, see, that's, that's not, that, that person obviously hasn't repented. So, ultimately, are we really focused on relationships and loving other people or are we more focused on loving material things? I think that's what it all boils down to. I remember when I went to a theological college in Australia, we had a relative who promised to let us stay in their house as long as we needed to before we rented a flat. And this uh, relative had a really nice, beautiful house. It was double story. It had uh, four bedrooms upstairs, you know, separate dining area, separate living area, separate TV area. 
But we only lasted a few days, I think, in that house. Because, um, I can't remember whether it was Joshua or Ben, but they, they, they were drawing on the table, not table, on the piece of paper on the table. But you know, young kids, when they draw, they, they crush the crayon too hard, right? Right, you know, they press very hard and the crayon sort of shatters as they're drawing. And the crayon fell on the floor onto their really nice white carpet. So the relative was very unhappy. Actually, the, the, it wasn't the, it was the relative's wife. La, was really unhappy. And basically asked us to leave. So, uh, what's going to happen now? So then, Joshua Ng managed to get some poor Christian student who only had a two-bedroom flat to take us up in their flat while we looked for to rent a, another flat. See, here was a student uh, who understood the principle of repentance in the terms of their stewardship, their generosity, and their love, as opposed to material things. Whereas, I guess, this relative, or this relative, his couple was more important than, than we were. And I think that that's what repentance is about, isn't it? It's a real change in the way that you relate to other people and material things. So, in conclusion, as we come to the end, in verse 15 to 18, uh, this is basically John's conclusion. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Christ. John answered them all, I, I, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I'm not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn, the, burn up the shaft with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and preached the good news to them. Now, here was a man, John, who knew his place before God. He didn't think he was a super-duper guy. He saw himself as a very, very low guy. Now, in the ancient world, uh, slaves, Hebrew slaves, could do a lot of things, but one thing they could not do was to take off the shoes or untie the thongs of uh, their masters. Okay, in those days, they didn't wear crocs, right? They had these Roman sandals where you tie them up. And the Roman, uh, sorry, the, the Hebrew slaves were not allowed, it was too demeaning, too degrading to, to take off the shoes for their masters. But what John said was that what he was in relationship to Jesus was even below that of a Hebrew slave before uh, a master when it came to comparing Jesus and him. Basically what John is saying is that Jesus is so much greater, he couldn't find a human comparison to relate himself to Jesus. And that's why people needed to not look at John the Baptist, but see Jesus. All John was doing was preparing the way for Jesus. But there was a negative side to Jesus, and he was going to judge people. Now, what happens is that in the olden days, uh, when they were... Getting gathering the wheat, they would have wheat. Uh, actually, I should show you some pictures, but you know, you can imagine a stalk of wheat and the grain is at the top. Can you see that? My hand. Wheat, grain at the top, right? So what they would do is they would sort of stomp and bash all the, the wheat in a, like a shallow hole or depression in the ground. And then in the afternoon when the wind comes up, what they would do is then they'd get a fork and throw up all the wheat into the air and then the wind would blow away all the loose Shaft and the stalk, and leave all the grain behind because the grain is the heavy part, right? Okay, and that's what Jesus is going to do. He's going to come and separate out those who repent and those who do not repent. That's that's, the, that's what John is saying, isn't it? 
So don't look to me and Jesus is going to come, but Jesus is going to separate out all those people. Those who listen to John the Baptist and repent, they are ready for Jesus. But those who do not listen to John, repent, uh, John and do not repent, they are like the shaft and the stalks which are blown away, which are destined for unquenchable fire. So that's the conclusion that John actually wanted to give uh, his uh, listeners. And I think that's the conclusion that we are to come to. So given that Jesus separates and burns up those who do not repent, are you repenting? Are you repenting? Do you have the fruit of repentance in your life? Uh, Do you take this seriously? Uh, Is this something where you see that you need to repent in the way that you relate to other people? Now, it's really interesting because when you look at this passage and how it fits into the overall plan of God, the word of God came to Isaiah 800 years before the birth of Jesus to say that this person will come and prepare the way for God's salvation. And then the word of God came to, uh, by the angels to Zechariah to say that John the Baptist would come and prepare the way for Jesus. And that came true. And then the word of God came to Zechariah himself and said that John the Baptist was the one who would prepare the way for the Savior by turning people's hearts back to God. And again, that came true. And then now the word of God came to John the Baptist to say that Jesus would be coming and he would be the powerful one. and He would baptize with uh, the Holy Spirit. And that also came true. But there's only one last thing which the word of God has said, which hasn't happened yet, right? Which hasn't come true. And that last thing is judgment. So everything else that God has said 800 years ago to the angels, to Zechariah, to John the Baptist, all of this has come true except judgment. Now, it looks like the Word of God has a very good track record. Don't you think? So God has said all these things and all these things have come true. Then the last thing that needs to come true is judgment. And the only way that we will get through that judgment is if our hearts are prepared through repentance, to accept Jesus Christ. Now, John the Baptist didn't come to stroke people's self-esteem and to make them feel good. He came to tell them the truth, the Word of God. He made it very clear that without repentance, people were not prepared to receive the Savior. That without repentance, there was no salvation. That without repentance, there was no forgiveness. If they did not repent, they were going to hell. So we know that Judgment Day is coming. We all need to repent. Because it is only in repenting that we can receive the forgiveness that comes through Jesus Christ. Okay, let's go to God in prayer. Dear Father, as we come before you, we pray that we take the words of your servant, the humble man, John the Baptist, seriously. We pray that we will see that repentance is something that is totally um, something that we cannot do without if we want to know Jesus. That we all need to repent, that we all need to examine our lives and see how we relate to other people to know whether we are generous, we are loving, whether we are fair, whether we are honest. We need to evaluate as well whether we treat money rightly. 
We need to examine our own lives to see whether the inner reality fits the outer picture. We really pray that our hearts are changed and that as we turn back to you, as we turn away from our sins and as we turn back to you, we can therefore receive this wonderful forgiveness, the good news of forgiveness in Jesus. We pray for many who do not know the message of repentance and are not ready to receive Jesus, that you will help us to share this difficult but good news so that they will avoid the fires of hell. We pray that we will not be embarrassed or ashamed of it, but to see that repentance is an essential an intrinsic part of your gospel message. And we pray for all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.